The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Here's a Japanese sneaking on with a Just an old second hand man, he'll buy your old days from you. He will take every sorrow of the day that is through, and he'll bring you tomorrow. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And tonight you join us for an episode in which we discuss Cthulhu in different periods of time. Mm. All our discussion on the Ithians recently, we've got this thing for time, haven't we? We've been jumping around. Yeah, Yeah, but everyone thinks of Call of Cthulhu as being a 1920s game. And of course, I mean, there is all the Cthulhu Now stuff, or the modern day stuff. Well, except Cthulhu Now is really a period game now, because it's all 1990s. Yeah, I can remember about ten years ago being in, uh, in the Tentacles Convention in Germany, and Sandy Peterson was there with his son, who was a fairly young teenager at the time, and he picked up the sheet saying... It says Cthulhu now, but... No, it, it was Cthulhu now. And he said, well, why does it have 1990s written on it? <laughs> <laughs> that was like ancient history to him. Uh, the, the 1990s handbook that Chaosium released now does seem very much like a time capsule of reference material. Oh, it does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> with the with the, the modem, which runs at about... Like, what was it, Scott? Oh, something like 56k, yeah. Oh, less than that, I think. It was oh, really? The, yeah, I think, oh, it, I think it was the 28 or so. It was really one of the really early... You know, dark. That is, that is still faster than my one at home, and we have one of those in our office at work. <laughs> you hear it scream every so often. I'm sure it's doing some kind of incantation. I understand, Scott. You've been you've been mixing it around. You've not been loyal to us. No, what have I you have. been up to? Do you want to? Com- you can confess now. I, I've been stepping out. I, I've been seeing other podcasts. Oh. <laughs> hear this, Matt. I feel used. What can I say? Yeah, I, I had a very merry weekend recording with the Miskatonic University podcast, and the episode was released today, but, I mean, obviously today is something like, yeah, at least two and a half, three weeks before this episode's getting released, so this will be old news by the time you hear it, but still, I mean, it's, it's today today, even if it's not today now. Did Did you happen to call out our name while you were, you know, with them? I, I, I try not to think of you when I'm not recording. <laughs> and what cuts even more, he said he had a merry weekend doing it. Yeah, oh. He never enjoys this. No, oh, we're professionals, damn it. We're not supposed to enjoy this shit. No, when I'm recording here, I just shut my eyes and think of England. <laughs> but in return, I mean, we do have uh, Keeper Murph from the Miskatonic University playing away from home with us. Oh, we do. Today. Yeah. Yes. So if you've got a subwoofer, I recommend you turn that down. <laughs> You used to make it sound like some kind of weird podcast host exchange program. <laughs> it is, yes. Or as we call it, kidnapping. <laughs> oh, no, no, I mean, we... Well, we should let Murph go at the end of this. I mean, it depends how good he is. I mean, we, we, we could always... Well, actually, no. Because we're recording over Skype when we talk to him. It's not like we can really keep him on the... I'll start working on the incantations. <laughs> we'll get the binding sorted out soon. Aww. Before we started recording, Matt started to uh, confide in, in us that he'd got some new Kickstarter that he was thinking about back in, and we started to, to, to inquire. And 
I think he's going to tell it. He's going to. He's got a confession to make as well. I believe. Oh, it's not a confession. But well, what's this Kickstarter yeah. Matt? Just say. I think he's going to make a blog about it. Yeah. Yes, there will. Yeah. There will be a blog that goes. Yes, up. but but you were warning us that it was something that we might disapprove of. Well, there's something that Scott will very much disapprove. Is of. it cuddly? It, it might be. Oh, for fuck's <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's one of the things I found that with a lot of Kickstarter projects recently, there's not really been that much that's come up with Cthulhu in the title, apart from the Cold War stuff that I've been interested enough to want to back it. Um, but this one came up because it was actually a companion project to one that I've already made a blog post about um, called C is for Cthulhu, which is a um, children's alphabet book. I, th um, I think you'll find C is also for other things. <laughs> <laughs> a complimentary? <laughs> but um, the, the C is for Cthulhu book was, I thought it was a wonderful little thing that if you ever have a young cultist, it's the perfect thing to try and indoctrinate them with. And there's plenty of in-jokes in it. And it is it has got some quite nice artwork in there. But on the front, it's got quite a stylized version of little plush Cthulhu walking along in the... Um, in line with other, with other mythos beasties. Yeah, listeners, you should be very glad this is not a video podcast. Matt was just doing the walk there. Uh, <laughs> it was 1d8 slash 1d3 sandals. So A is for Azathoth. Yeah, I think A is for Azathoth. Let, let's go round. I'm taking A. A is for Azathoth. B is for Bupoth. But you got it easy, sir. C is for... for... You're going to have to bleep this. <laughs> I am not Dears playing. Dears for Dagon. Uh, I think it was deep one in the book. Um, e is for Ihalt, which oh. begins with begins with an E. If, yeah. if if only I could think of something that was close to my heart, related to this conversation that began with F. <laughs> uh, for Targon. Yeah, there you go. No, not even close. Or for Thogwa. G is for Darky. Uh, remember the alphabet now. Yeah, I know. I have to think G as well. A H, H, H. Hasta. Hasta. What was that? <laughs> True. I. I is for I'm not playing along. I. What is I for? Ithaqua. Yeah, there you go. J. Ooh, that's a tricky one. Oh, no. J. This is podcast gold. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to a man ponder. scratches his head. <laughs> I, I think we should take this as our cue to give up on this. Okay, we're defeated. <laughs> we're defeated by the letter This is J. why we're not doing a Kickstarter with an alphabet book for children. No, no, no the, the book was the previous Kickstarter. What, um, so what's the, this one? The new one is that they've done a plush version of the figure on the front cover of the book. Because if there's, if there's one thing the world needs, it's another fucking plush Cthulhu. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> My legs almost gave way with that news, Matt. But I, I managed to remain standing. He's got his cute little wings and he's got this lovely... His tentacles all curl up at the front of him. He's got these big loving eyes and... Okay. Oh. <laughs> and it was worth it just to see the expression on Scott's face. <laughs> Let's move on. He says, picking up some pieces of paper. <laughs> so I was looking on iTunes today and on the US site we actually have a rating. Uh, we have a five-star rating. Uh, I think you have to get a number of reviews before you're actually given a rating. Each reviewer can give it a rating of their own, but you have to have a number of them before you get an official one. Yeah, I think five is the magic number. Right. Um, I thought it was three. No, no we got five. three on the UK one, but you don't have an actual rating on the UK side. I was making a very bad joke about three being a magic number, but fair enough. Ah. <laughs> okay, that went over our heads. <laughs> um, we have um, from... 
Eddie Poe, you know I can't read this. From <laughs> Eddie Poe 68, at least I think it says 68, my printout is a little grey. Uh, who, who is a regular poster on the MU forum. Okay, so it's posted us a five-star review on iTunes saying... <clears throat> didn't say that. I, how did he spell that, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> saying, it starts off bad, but it gets better. Saying, to be honest, I didn't care for this podcast when, I f when it first launched. It's okay, neither did we. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't terrible, but I think it lacked enough polish to keep me engaged and stay on my feed. That was just the shed. That, he then goes on to say, I'm pleased to report has all changed. I gave it another try and I'm glad I did. This show and its hosts both educate and horrify me. I'm hooked like a tracked fish gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for that review. And yes. We're glad that you came back. Yeah, apparently a tracked fish worked there then. No, he's just making a joke, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, in terms of drawing in, in uh, listenership. Oh, yes, this, this is one from the UK site. Um, someone using the name Maze Eskazi, which I do remember looking up, and I can't remember for the life of me where that comes from. Well, that's informative and educative, Scott. <laughs> and, but is it horrifying? Mm, well, let's see. <laughs> So, the, the, yeah, yes, this is, this is one of my favourite reviews. In their shed at Milton Keynes, three dreamers lay recording. Deformed, unattractive albino men, snog, marry or avoid, you choose. Ah. These old dears are given to wandering around the new town's cosmic roundabouts, trying to read the great odorous books which they have inherited through their four decades of role-playing. Gorgons, hydras and chimeras... Dire stories of the concrete cows. They are transcripts, types. The archetypes are in us and eternal. No cream for me, thanks. <laughs> I, th I think you've had enough cream. <laughs> I thought William Burroughs passed away a few years ago. <laughs> I was going to say he's been looking in the window while we've been recording. <laughs> That's spot on. And, and on the back of that, he gave it five stars. Yeah. Okay, this guy is clearly insane. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, so I mean, if you want to come in with um, suggestions about the snog marry avoid, um, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> this comment from Tor Nielsen sprung out of discussion regarding the um, the great race of Yith and their connection with, say, Bill, having built a fascist society and state. Quote, I wonder if they're sort of an ideal state for him, him being Lovecraft, that is, being free to explore all world and time without the embarrassing constraints of a body or emotions. No loyalty except to the race as a whole. The fascist ideal is usually a warrior, but here it's the fascist as a scholar. Or maybe I thought too much about it, and I certainly need to read it again. So we actually do have some fairly intelligent discussion going back and forth. There. Well, we certainly do. We've got some very good <laughs> listeners. Yeah, Tor, yeah. I think um, you've got a point. We, we kind of brought up the discussion about were they kind of like a fascist race like the, the, the Nazis. Um, and... Yeah, it's an interesting thing about they're very kind of um, academic. Um... Yeah, which I mean, considering the anti-intellectual bent of the Nazis is yeah you know, quite a turnaround there. I mean, it's a side of fascism we don't generally see. I mean, fascism, you know, the period was was pretty rigorously anti-intellectual. But if Lovecraft's going to pick one, I guess that's the angle he would go for. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just an unusual take on fascism and a very Lovecraftian one. You brought up Lovecraft's letter about Hitler. What what did he say in that? Because I, oh, 
God. Um, there, there was. It was vaguely pro Hitler. Oh, it was wasn't just vaguely. Well, it, no, it was a bit mixed. I mean, he talks. I can't remember exactly, but he talks basically about um, you know Hitler being pretty gauche and and so on. But it it wraps up with the, the <laughs> slight understanding. Yeah, okay. yeah, but it wraps up with the discussion with the line of something like, "But damn it, I like the boy." <laughs> I guess we should add that he was writing that before the Second World War, yeah. and well, he was dead. He was before dead the in thirty-seven. He was dead yeah. in thirty-seven, but yeah, I think he wrote this about thirty-four, thirty-five, and yeah. and apparently, yeah, I, I think we probably mentioned this during the shout out of time discussion. But Lovecraft's views on Hitler did change within his own lifetime. When did they? Uh, right. apparently someone he knew, one of his neighbours, maybe, uh, did actually go over to Germany and came back and and told Lovecraft something about what the Nazis were doing and about their treatment of Jews there. Um, and uh, Lovecraft changed his his support of of Hitler, you know, pretty much on the basis of that. Right. But that's that's enough cheery discussion of Nazis. But if you've got any other topics you want to bring up on social media, then jump in and join us and uh, throw in your ideas. And now, time for our Lovecraftian Word of the Week. And now, the Lovecraftian Word of the Week. And this week's word is charnel. What a great word is charnel. I, there's, I, not only is it you know, a perfect word for horror and the kind of macabre stuff that Lovecraft wrote, but there's just something about the sound of the word that I find incredibly appealing. The dictionary tells us it's a noun, a repository for the bones or bodies of the dead, a shortened version of charnel house. Or an adjective... Resembling, suggesting, or suitable for receiving the dead. Yeah, and Lovecraft, like most people, used charnel exclusively as an adjective. Um, I, I went through uh, my big e-book of all his stories, and I couldn't see a single instance of him using it as a noun, but he did use it a few dozen times as an adjective. When I ever see the word personally, I keep thinking of Graham Masterton, because he wrote a novel called Charnel House, that one day I'll get around to reading. <laughs> one day. It is an almost perfect Lovecraftian adjective in that it it not only has, you know, it covers Lovecraftian subject matter, but it's got that slightly old-fashioned feel to it. It's a an almost genteel word for something really quite unpleasant. And that, you know, to me makes it quintessentially Lovecraftian. From Herbert West, Reanimator. The scene I cannot describe. I should faint if I tried it. For there is madness in a room full of classified charnel things, with blood and lesser human debris almost ankle-deep on the slimy floor, and with hideous reptilian abnormalities sprouting, bubbling and baking over a winking bluish-green spectre of dim flame in a far corner of black shadows. And again, how Lovecraftian is that? The scene I cannot describe. I will now spend a paragraph describing it. <laughs> when I was young and, and reading his stories, that was always the thing that struck me. I was like, I cannot describe it, but, but. <laughs> here it is. From the festival. For it is of old rumour that the soul of the devil bought hastes not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, 
till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it, and swell monstrous to plague it. And from Nyarlathotep, A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that are not hands, and world blindly past ghastly midnights of rotting creation, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low. I love that phrase, sores that were cities. That is nice. As far as I know, Lovecraft never went to Dundee. I was going to say slough. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, apologies to our listeners from either city. We hope you escape soon. (laughs) (laughs) You're not making it better. (laughs) And now, moving on to our main topic, let's have a look at how to play Call of Cthulhu in other eras. Almost anyone who's played Call of Cthulhu has probably played it in the default mode of the 1920s. I mean, some of us, you know, perhaps play or run a lot of modern day stuff as well, but 1920s is what most people are used to. But of course, there are other published eras, and also, you know, some of us like setting scenarios in time periods other than some of the published ones. And so that's really what we wanted to look at for this episode. One thing that, you know, always interests me, and I think you've made this point before, Paul, is that we think of the 1920s obviously as a period setting. But obviously, when Lovecraft was writing these stories, this was contemporary fiction to him. He wasn't writing these as period pieces. And it's also important that when Lovecraft was writing a lot of that 1920s and and 30s stuff, he was writing kind of cutting-edge 1920s and 30s stuff. He was using, you know, the the discovery of Pluto, um, the, the, the Antarctic expeditions. Those were things that were going on in his time. So it's like us writing about the Large Hadron Collider, um, the you know the today's news about the the photos of Pluto and so on. It's like us incorporating that kind of current news into our into our uh, work. Um, but you know, looking at Lovecraft's work, I think I think the two prime periods are still the 1920s stroke early 30s when Lovecraft was writing because that's what he was setting it in, and modern day because again that's what Lovecraft is writing. And I think it's interesting as well, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier, that because Call of Cthulhu has been around for such a long time, writing modern day stuff becomes period uh, stuff pretty quickly. You know, people writing contemporary scenarios back in the early days of Call of Cthulhu, I mean, that's 35 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, if we think about 35 years previously uh, from that time period, that's within Lovecraft's lifet- lifetime, isn't it? No, it's not. It's, it's, no, it's 1945. It's not far off. But no, it's, it's Second World War. Well, when we were talking about the Cold War the other day, Scott, and it was, yeah. if we go back to the start of 1970, which is the start of the Cold War period in, in the, uh, the Cubicle 7 Cold War um, book, that's 45 years ago. If you go 45 years ago from when Sandy Peterson wrote Call of Cthulhu, that's 1935? 45 years, yes. So that step back from the back to the 1920s is a lot longer now than it was when Sandy was writing the original Call of Cthulhu in the 80s. Mm. I hate to scare you, but in five years' time, it'll be 100 years. Yeah, yeah, we'll be having the 20s again. Actually, in a few years' time, we'll be writing... We'll be able to combine the two and write Bond Day... 
20s material. Yes, we'll have to be a bit more specific and say 1920s. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. <laughs> I mean, for a start, I, I find it very interesting, as I said, the way that this modern-day stuff becomes, you know, historical scenarios. You know, when we get round to, for example, doing 1980s stuff in the Cold War setting, that's going to be, you know, modern-day stuff from when Call of Cthulhu was first published, yeah. done as a historical setting. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, which is, is quite frightening. But I, Paul and I have certainly had this discussion before that, you know, certainly as we get older, and, you know, you, you'll get there in time, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> but as we get older, you know, I, I think both of us have become a bit more interested in history. And I, I think this is fairly inevitable as, as one gets older. And you begin to see much more or get a much better appreciation of your place in time. I mean, it's the fact that, you know, I, I turned 50 in a few months. You know, I, I, you know, I was born in the, you know, in the days of the Vietnam War. I, I grew up with that, you know, on the television. I remember the, you know, seeing the first moon landing on TV as a very young child. And, you know, the, these are things that we think of as historical events, which, you know, live within my memory now. You know, I can, you know... History is no longer an abstract thing to me. When I was a child and I thought about historical events, you know, things like the Second World War, you know, it seemed so long ago. It, it seemed, seemed ancient history. But, yeah. but looking back in, you know, from our perspective and thinking about, you know, our parents were younger than we were, you know, at that time. They would have had a memory of the Second World War in their lifetimes. The Second World War to them was like, the you know, the 70s to us. Or, yeah. to us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whilst that's quite a while ago, um, you know, it, 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 if anything is within your lifetime, it kind of feels significantly more recent, I think, than anything before your lifetime. But it's not just that as well. I mean, it's the fact that, you know, the fact that I can remember stuff that happened almost 50 years ago. That kind of makes me think of stuff that maybe happened 100 years ago as... No, as being more accessible, that it, it feels it stops feeling like an abstract <clears throat> and starts feeling like a human span. Well, except that I think um, it kind of puts me in mind that any anything a hundred years ago is beyond. There's nobody I can go and talk. Well, it may be the odd person that is going to remember a hundred years ago, but they're going to be extremely few and far between. And certainly, if you go, you know, say 110, 120 years, then you can't talk to anybody that was there. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's a that's a quantifiable difference. You know, you've got to go to a secondary source. I, on the other hand, you know, we probably both grew up talking to people who had experiences from periods we now think of being, you know, inherently historical. Mm. You know, for example, when I was writing some stuff for the uh, the World War Cthulhu London book, uh, stuff during set during the Second World War about civil defence and so on, I drew a lot from conversations I'd had with my father, uh, who grew up during that time period. Um, you know, again, you know, some of my interest in, in the Cold War and in Berlin comes from the fact that, you know, I, I had conversations with my father about him being stationed in Berlin uh, for his national service, and he was involved with the Berlin airlift there. You know, they, again, these aren't kind of dry, abstract historical things. These are part of my family's history. Dunkirk. My, my grandfather, you know, was at Dunkirk and was captured and spent the Second World War in, you know, in a German really? prisoner of war camp. 
that that's kind of almost like a a, a a verbal history, isn't it? I mean, we've got those things we can look them up on, you know, Wikipedia and YouTube and millions of books. But actually, knowing somebody who was there, even if it's a second-hand account, you know, a, a family member that was there or just somebody who was there, it kind of brings it to life that bit more. Uh, mm. I was reading an article just the other day about somebody was writing a letter and saying that their, I think it was their father or grandfather had known someone, so it was kind of a second remove, that was at the Battle of Waterloo. Wow. Um, you know, they were a very old person. The person they knew was young at the time. And, you know, so it's kind of within a couple of human stretches, you can go back that far. Um, it's... It, it just kind of makes it that little bit more tangible. Yeah. Yeah, I, one thing I'd, I'd really recommend is, yeah, those of you, you know, who you know, have got living parents who are on good terms with them and, you know, are able to talk about stuff like this, you know, while they're around, pump them for every bit of information about the world they grew up in because, you know, this is... This is living history. I mean, it's not only part of your family, but it's a, it's a connection to the past that is absolutely... And not vital. necessarily family. I mean, it could oh, be, yes. you know, a relative or whatever. I mean, certainly I regret not talking to my father-in-law. Um, he was stationed out in... Uh, he was a, in the Second World War in uh, um, North Africa, in, in Egypt and so on. Um, and uh, I think following this pretty much... Having listened to Spike Milligan's diaries of the Second World War, I think he was on pretty much the same track that Spike Milligan was on. Oh, nice. Um, so going well, down actually, into... not nice. It's no, pretty, not nice. Pretty horrific, actually. Going through North Africa and then up into <laughs> Italy. Um, and he told the odd story about it, but it was, you know, he didn't, didn't say a great deal about it. And then, you know, he passed away nearly 20 years, well, 20 years ago. And, and I kind of always regret not, not having sort of uh, heard a bit more about it from him. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly conversations I would have liked to have had in more depth with my father like that as well. I mean, for example, my father, when he did his national service, did his radio training at Bletchley Park. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, sometime before he died, uh, he came down to Milton Keynes for a visit and we actually went round Bletchley Park together and he was going around pointing out places he remembered. And that was fantastic. <laughs> oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, I get a little bit of a few slices with my grandfather. Um, I'm lucky enough that he's 95, so he's still around. Um, but yeah, he was at Dunkirk and he served in uh, North Africa as well. Um, he ended up going... Well, he'd be exactly the same age as my father-in-law then that passed away 20 years ago at 75. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, he ended up um, getting wounded out of um, the army. I think he ended up taking shrapnel to his foot um, around the time of El Alamein and then came back afterwards. Yeah, um, I know it's always one of those things I'm always a bit um, wary talking to him about because it's not exactly nice stuff. Yeah, but I mean, it, it obviously depends on the person, yes. I mean, some people mm. won't want to revisit some of those, you know, darker times of their lives. That's mm. the kind of typical thing of yeah. not wanting to talk about it, isn't it, I think. And now we'll talk about Cthulhu through the ages. Yeah, if we're talking about other time periods, it'd be kind of remiss not to talk about the Chaosium publication, Cthulhu Through the Ages. And this came out as part of the 7th edition Kickstarter. And it's really sort of a sampler of the different published settings, uh, the, the non-standard uh, time periods uh, that Call of Cthulhu you know, has been set in. Yeah, a couple of which are monographs, I believe, rather than um, not mainstream releases. Well, there's at least one that's unique to this book, but we'll get to that. 
Yeah, and it starts off with the uh, the Roman, the Dark Ages, and mythic Iceland, all kind of quite a long way in history. Uh, and it, I mean, certainly they're the, the standalone um, books for each one of those. And we get a little taster, a little bit of the setting of each one, um, and a bunch of extra uh, rules for those settings, which mainly focus around combat. Uh, with special rules for shields and armour and, and so on. Um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting uh, choice to put Mythic Iceland in this. I know, yeah. I, 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 I love Mythic Iceland. I think it's a great book. Uh, but, I mean, what makes it an odd choice for this is it's not a Call of Cthulhu book. No, but it, it fits well. And, um, yeah, I've got uh, Pedro's book on the shelf right there. I must... It's, one of, it's on my reading list. <laughs> Yeah, I went through it a little bit because um, one of the chapters in the pulp campaign we've done is set in Iceland. Um, Pedro very kindly had a chat with me on Instant Messenger and kind of put me right about a few things, gave me suggestions of, of where I could set certain things. And yeah, his book's been invaluable. It then goes on to the more standard uh, settings of Gaslight and Dreamlands before moving on to a sci-fi setting and an end time setting. Yeah, the sci-fi setting one, uh, it sounds interesting. Apparently this was published in Worlds of Cthulhu, issue two initially. Oh, OK. It uh, sounds kind of like a, a mashup of kind of Alien and... Um, it's, it's Event Horizon, basically. Yeah, that's the one I was trying to think of, yeah. yeah. So you could run that kind of setting on there, yeah. Yeah, it, it seems to be very much sort of dimensional breaches and mythos unpleasantness in space. Uh, which, yeah, sounds like a, a very appealing setting to me. Because every time someone uses the, uh, uses the term in space, I can't help but thinking of the Muppets. <laughs> yeah, the last setting in there is another interesting one, and this one I believe is actually unique to this book, uh, and that's Cthulhu End Times The Reaping. This seems to be you know, very much a, a sort of standard post-apocalyptic setting, except with mythos elements in there. And it's about the survivors of mythos apocalypse trying to, you know, trying to avoid destruction at the hands of the mythos. I believe that Mike was asking at some stage whether this should be expanded into a, a larger setting or a larger book. I, at the moment, it's just really the few pages in, the, um, in this book. Like you said, it's a kind of a taster for each of these settings. I think if, if anybody's going to take one of the, if you're going to pick up through, through the ages and run any of these settings, you're going to have to invest either in in the book that, that it came from and, and use this as a kind of a, a, a mode of using 7th edition with it, or, you know, put in quite a bit of work yourself to expand it, you know, as, as a kind of a inspiration and a starting point, which is, you know, fine. Yeah. Um, if I remember right, there was the Ask Sandy thread that went up on yogsothoff.com recently. Yeah. And one of the things that he mentioned there of directions he would like to take various different bits of Call of Cthulhu in, he was, he was thinking of setting a campaign within the Cthulhu Wars type setting. Um, if this is very much like the end, judgment, etc., great old ones walking the earth, that could be a good fit for that. It could well be. Yeah. I don't think Pedro's going to like that, though, because there's no Iceland on the Cthulhu Wars map. Ah! Oh. <laughs> oh, there's Nova Sight. I think it did come up at one time. <laughs> In Reykjavik, below the waves. <laughs> it's been sunk. It's been, yeah, it's been it's, sunk it's beneath been, the waves, like Relier. Yeah. yeah. Pedro Actually, thinking dreamer. of it, there's no Relier either. Ah! Yeah, I, I think no Iceland is a big of an oversight. 
For each of these seven settings, you get some new professions. Well, not new professions, but professions that come from those settings. Some of them would have been featured in the, in the books that exist for those settings already, but with new interpretations for seventh edition. Uh, the same for skills and backstory elements. For some of the settings, you get monsters. So for uh, Iceland and the Dreamlands, for Dreamlands, we get Gugs and Moonbeasts and Zoogs. Which are omitted from the um, from the, the the core rulebook now. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, and you've got to have zoogs, especially well, angry, especially angry zoogs. Yeah, <laughs> and of well, course character sheets. Have you ever met a good-tempered zoog? I've seen the picture of an angry zoog from the Dreamlands Guide, and I thought yeah. that was quite amusing. Obviously, this only represents a handful of the possible time periods in which you can set a Call of Cthulhu game. And, you know, really, half the fun of writing stuff is just coming up with, you know, unusual things. And that can include unusual time settings. We'll go into that in a bit more detail with our guest, Keeper Murph. We're joined now by Murph from the Miskatonic University podcast. Welcome, Murph. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Murph, yeah, this is long overdue. We've been meaning to have you on the podcast for some time now, since really, really good to have you on. Oh, I'm flabbergasted that you asked. I'm <laughs> a huge fan. Excellent. Oh, thank you. We've been talking about different settings for Call of Cthulhu in different periods. Let's just have a moment and chat about what other periods we've enjoyed playing in. Do you want to kick off, Murph? Have you played? I mean, we've got the default 1920 setting and, you know, we've got the ever-changing modern day. Have you played other periods? Yeah, I, I haven't. No, 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 no. I've, <laughs> no, no, I've never played another period. I'm strictly a 1920s kind of guy. No, um, <laughs> I've, I've done some Gaslight. I really like the Gaslight system, but nobody else wants to play it. And so oh. I don't know why that is, but um, I like the Gaslight um age there that whole system there that with especially with the modifications that made the credit rating i really enjoyed those but um i did a big campaign i ran since a slide of handman with uh in the dreamlands from dennis detweller and that was a lot of fun um because you can just be crazy um, and i play with a bunch of crazy people anyway so it, it worked it played to our strengths in that sense um but if i had to guess which one i liked the most I, I really do like playing modern more than I like playing the others. It's, it's kind of strange to say that, but I enjoy coming up with the, um, the challenge whenever you're coming up with a session to try and <laughs> handicap the players enough when there's so much working in their favor in a modern day game. You know what well, I mean? So Yeah. Don't, don't you think that when you look at, you know, the, the parallel to our kind of stories, if you parallel it with films, most horror films, I think, when are they set? They're set in the modern day of their, you know, of their era. The Exorcist was set in its modern day. You know, right. Blair Witch was set in its modern day. You know, we got any, most horror films are set in the, in the present day just because, I think not only because it's kind of maybe easier to do, but it's also easier for the audience to buy into, I'd guess. Right, and they can relate better. Uh, the, 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 one, the one catch there is the bit of isolation. You know, so each one of those also has that, you know, Blair Witch, they're stuck in the woods or mm. whatnot. So you've got to figure out a way to, to separate them from the ease of the readily available technology of the time that can help them out greatly. Yeah, um, 
it was really interesting watching horror films change in the 1990s as mobile phone technology became more common. And, right. yeah, obviously, yeah, isolation suddenly became that much more difficult when you could just pull this device out of your pocket and talk to someone on the other side of the world. And so, yeah, it then just obviously became this trope almost immediately that at some point someone will pull their phone out and just complain about, you know, having a crappy signal. Uh and you know, that, that that would just set the scene. Yeah, there's a, I've, I've battled with ways to come up with good, plausible reasons why characters should not be able to use their uh, mobile phones in a modern mm. game. I, I've not come up with a really, you know, end all discussion to that yet. Um, if, if you guys have help there, I would greatly appreciate <laughs> well, it. Uh, but well, I, well, I mean, anything from cell phone jammers being used by cultists in areas to uh, I created some sort of bullshit EMP blast that took <laughs> out technology in a ring. So I basically put it in the 20s, even though it was the modern at that point, which is kind of a, you know, a, a um, cop out. But oh, well, it's uh, not really a, de a default reason, is that you've just got to kind of come up with a different reason. If indeed you need a reason each time. Um, well, yeah, yeah. If, I mean, that, that, that's sort of a point. I mean, you don't necessarily need that reason because I mean, for a start, I mean, the, there's, um, if you think about, uh, what was it, Return of the Living Dead in the 1980s, you had that wonderful thing whereby you had a couple of intelligent zombies who managed to get hold of this ambulance and were just, you know, using the radio on there to send an endless stream of paramedics to them so they could eat them. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it, just because you're calling on, you know, the police or the emergency services to help, that doesn't mean, you know, if the scales, uh, the problem is bad enough that they're going to be able to cope with it when they turn up. I mean, you could just be bringing lambs to the slaughter yeah that's true but at that point you know the scale of the of the problem has escalated to such an extent that like in return of the living dead you know you've got a global apocalypse of zombie apocalypse thing happening you know and if you wanted to keep yeah. it contained to a smaller location then you've got to have some other method like either just isolated where there's just no cell coverage which is crappy and rare these days but you know still could plausibly happen or some other reason as to why they wouldn't want to call the phone well um, yeah i mean maybe if they don't necessarily trust uh the emergency exactly. services it'll be sent out i mean if it's a small town or something like that and there's the chance that the cult has infiltrated the police department then calling the police could be the worst possible thing to do and also, if right. you cast them as um, pre-gens that are all, um, you know, drug runners and criminals, then they're probably not going to call the cops. That's true. Um, then also, um, I thought about doing it with, uh, like, having expats in another country so that yeah. the only phones that they had, it would cost them, like, 40 bucks to make a, a, a two-second phone call, you know, just to dial out. Or give really? them just sat phones so that they can only call the other side of the world who's not going to be able to help them immediately anyway? Or somebody you know, um, who are illegal immigrants? Oh, there you go. That's a good one. Yeah. Or, or spies. I, I hear spies. They might be oh, spies. Oh, games. <laughs> oh, I wonder, wonder why that's on his brain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, if you... Sorry, Matt, go on. Oh, so I think I've used the trick before that the cult or basically your insert bad guy here tip off the police to say that by the way we think we're gonna um we think you're gonna get some prank calls at this particular time um oh. about this particular subject so either humor them or do what you want with them and they effect they effectively then have the police turn around and saying oh is that the case yeah sure we'll, we'll send someone yeah 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 all good 
Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a good idea too. And and there was another kind of take on things as well, which uh, turned up a lot in uh, Far East and particularly Japanese and Korean horror films uh, about you know ten fifteen years ago, which was this whole idea of uh, technology and and mobile phones in particular suddenly becoming a uh, sort of conduit for the supernatural. Right. Uh, so you know, then you've got the idea that you know the tools you're using to call for help, you know, actually become a danger to you. Yeah, and that's a that's an idea I would love to play around with some more. That, I think that would be a fun game where the the one thing that you think you have going for you is your worst freaking enemy. You know, that would that would be fantastic. What about uh, what about you guys? What do y'all prefer to play in? I mean, have you already talked about that or? No, not yet. We were saved. We've not really chosen our favorite periods, have we? What would you say, Matt? What would you, you know, you've run games in a lot of different periods. What would you say if you had to pick one? Uh, if I was playing a game, um, I, I do like the 20s. I'm a, I'm a sucker for the historical, just the atmosphere of it. That, that whole almost glitz glamour before the storm of the Depression. But my personal favorite when it comes to any time setting out there it would be it'd be a toss-up between either the wild west or the the english civil war both of them again they have a they have a kind of style with enough history backing up that you can do so many varied things and you've got the whole pushing into the unknown with the west and then um at least with the english civil war you've got a time when a lot of mythos tomes were still being written and that's just the point when they're starting to emerge so again it's this under this sea of turmoil you have a lot of stuff coming to the surface that really shouldn't man should not know mm. rather than it being old mouldering tomes these things are brand new just off the shelf so again it's looking through the same the same material but just through a slightly different angle that's, that's what appeals to me well and also the turmoil of war uh makes for you know quite an interesting backdrop anyway because it makes it easier for horrible things to happen again you know maybe even the ramping up that whole idea of isolation that you know, when civilization is you know falling apart around you then it becomes that much more difficult to to uh, call for help especially when transport then being even slower than it is in the 20s then yeah suddenly a mile might as well be 100 by today's standards right exactly i do have to admit that after reading through cthulhu through the ages i was really intrigued by the uh, sci-fi setting that they had in there just because i hadn't um i've never actually played a sci-fi setting well i've played like um what is it the void or um oh hell what is that there's a sci-fi mythosy game with mechs it's it's a i can't remember we did an actual play of it uh, on our side cthulhu tech yeah cthulhu tech and then there's another one that's something about the void i can't remember what it's called but and i apologize but um i've played those and they're fun but it's not really call of cthulhu you know what i mean Hmm. so it was kind of interesting why isn't it called cthulhu murph what would you say well one had mechs i mean it's (laughs) sci-fi but it's mechs Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, mechs are great if you're into playing with mechs, but I was never a huge like BattleTech fan or anything. So um, they're mechs. I, I don't. I don't have. I mean, I'm not saying mechs are bad. I don't want to piss anybody off, but I mean, for me, mechs are cool, but they're not. They're not what I want, really want to be but, playing it. But, but surely, you know, that, that's the epitome of Call of Cthulhu: being able to punch Dagon in the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that didn't work out that way. Uh, <laughs> I did have a character try and hit uh, Narlathet up in the back of the head with his hammer. That was that was fun. 
Um, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, anyway, the, the Cthulhu Icarus setting was, was pretty cool just because of, again, it was that whole isolation bit. I really think the isolation bit in Call of Cthulhu helps more than anything um, personally, regardless of setting. Because if you can get them alone in some way or form or fashion, then you're, you've got them already. You just have to play with them at that point. Have any of us played, I mean, the going back as far as, say, Wild West and so on, it kind of, obviously not modern day, is it? But we've seen so many kind of Westerns and cowboy films. That's an easy thing to kind of um, latch into. Have any of us played the the ones, uh, I mean, there's, there's a break in the um, Cthulhu Through the Ages book where you've got three sections. You've got Roman, Dark Ages, and Mythic Iceland, and then you've got uh, a bunch of combat rules for shields and armor and so on, which you know, my, I associate more with Dungeons and Dragons, but those three first settings are kind of very, you know, they're much further removed than, say, the Wild West or English Civil War. Have any of us played? Any of us played those? And how do those feel? Have you played those, Murph? Any of those? Yeah, I've I've played um, the Viking setting, and that's actually quite fun. I liked it, and Invictus again is fantastic as well. Um, if as long as you know your history enough to to make it worthwhile, because you know I think that helps quite a bit. So if you have some smattering of Viking or Roman history behind you, you'll be able to. And, and did you manage to get a feel, of, or did you aim to get a feel of a Call of Cthulhu game, or was it more of an adventure game feel? Because when I've played it, it's kind of because I think because you've got you know I've got swords and armor, and and that that was how the games we played had it kind of. You, you mind, I, I can't yeah. help but fall back into a kind of a, a D&D kind of mindset. Yeah, it depends. I, I've played it with some different keepers. And I'll, I'll give you this. Like when I ran Invictus or when I played with Invictus with, um, with one keeper, it was like a Call of Cthulhu game. Um, but when I played Invictus with another guy, I think it's really keeper based. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. it's. If they go into it thinking it's going to be hack and slash, then it's going to be hack and slash. If it's going to, if they go into it, you know, trying to, you know, pitch up the the nuances and the the interrelationships and the the mysterious aspects of it, then it's going to probably play more like Call of Cthulhu. I don't, I don't, the the combat rules that they added in there. I mean, in one game we hardly ever even touched them. In another game, that's all we did. So it felt more like a D and D or like a like a um, a basic role play fantasy game, you know what mm. I mean, mm. um, as opposed to a a, a mythosy Cthulhu game. So I really think it's keeper there more than anything else. But yeah, it's it's it le- it lends itself to allow for that mythosy feel to it. But at the same time, it's it's really coming down to keeper preference as to whether or not it gets pulled off that way. Yeah, certainly yeah. my one experience of playing uh, Cthulhu Dark Ages was very much kind of classic uh, Call of Cthulhu rather than a combat game. Um, I, I'm trying to remember, it was one of the ones that um, uh, Wim used to run at, uh, at conventions in the UK years ago uh, that he set somewhere in, in medieval Belgium. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was very much a kind of classic Call of Cthulhu investigation. I don't think any of us drew weapons once. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, whereas I think I've played two Dark Ages, no, two Invictus games on one Dark Ages game. And well, one of the Invictus games was pretty much combat from start to finish. Mm. Um, another one had a little bit of 
but other scenes thrown in, but again, was the vast majority combat. And the Dark Ages one was just combat scene after combat scene with hardly any story. Yeah, see, I think that's just Keeper style. I, I'm curious, did, did the Keeper that run it, was he primarily like a hack and slash style D&D uh, GM, or did he come from Call of Cthulhu? No, no far from it. He's very much a... Um, he's his, his era, actually, is he prefers Gaslight. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I was in that game as well, and, and he was playtesting somebody else's scenario. So, oh, um, okay. You know, that, that was the material he had got, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's the, you are thinking the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he gets a pass on that one then. So. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't really help it. Oh, yeah, definitely testing. not his fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to blame that on him. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since he's probably listening. So, <laughs> we'll lose any more listeners. <laughs> We sort of touched on the Dreamlands in passing, but uh, it, it, when you mentioned uh, sense of the sleight of hand, man, Murph. Uh, but I mean, we, we've I think mentioned in passing on the show before that you know, the Dreamlands tends to be a very divisive setting; that it tends to be one that people either love or hate. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you tend to come down more on the love side of things. I like, yeah, I like the Dreamlands. I, I don't. I've always enjoyed the Dreamlands, um, even before it was cool to like the Dreamlands. I guess. But. <laughs> Um, no, I've always enjoyed the Dreamlands just because it did. I came, I mean, the first real RPGs we started playing was, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that when I was a kid. And so it gave me that feel of Dungeons and Dragons without, with the same time being just weird as all hell, like I like my Cthulhu games to be. And so it kind of, I was able to mesh both worlds when I run those games. Um, so I can give guys, especially with new players. Because they won't, people who come straight from like D&D, I like to throw them in Dreamlands first because I can just completely fuck with their heads um, because they expect it to go one way. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit. And I'll have a guy take get a hit and then they can heal it. And then they're like, wait, I can heal. Oh, shit, I can heal. And then, you know, I mean, it's just an easy way for them to figure out that this is not the same system. Um, but I really enjoy Dreamlands. Uh, I think it gets a lot of flack because... Um, people kind of pigeonhole it into that strange, it is a really strange setting. Um, but I did like the, uh, the census light of hand man, they changed the, um, the, the dreaming skill a little bit to where it made more sense for me. Um, instead of just being able to roll out flat and create something, um, Dennis had come up with a system where, um, it was based on, I don't remember, it's been two years since I've played this, so you're going to have to forgive me, but it was this other nuanced system that he came up with. It was based on points, and you had so many points that you could spend in it, and if you got something right, you got another little temporary point in your dreaming skill. It was kind of like a willpower chart for dreaming, and it would allow you to to create better and better stuff, but it, once you messed up, you kind of got knocked back down to your base amount you know what i mean so it it worked out really well in game terms at least but it was a lot of bookkeeping on the keepers end so that side of it i didn't really care for it that much but um it was still a lot of fun um i really i liked it i I don't have a problem with the dreamlands i i um i'm I'm the weird one most likely on that (laughs) no i i'm with you there i I must admit i haven't done a lot of dreamlands uh gaming I, i did some back in the 80s and i played the occasional 
uh, scenario since then. Uh, but when I started out reading Lovecraft, you know, many, many years ago, uh, it was the Dreamland stories particularly that sold me on him in the first place. And Dream, yeah, Quest, so- Un- Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath was my favorite Lovecraft story for a long time. Same here, and uh, the Silver Key and stuff like that really grabbed me as well. So, I mean, that's kind of what got me into Lovecraft was the Dreamlands anyway. So I've got like a I'm little, I'm little uh, favorite towards that, you know. I lean more towards that than anything else, I guess, if I had to guess. But I really do like the Dreamlands, but, you know, not, not many others do. <laughs> I guess there's a, there's a... Well. I, I love it. Do you as guess... well. You like it too, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I ran a Dreamlands game for Paul and Scott a few weeks back. <laughs> Paul liked it. <laughs> um, but no, I, I tend to flavor my Dreamlands games with more of the personal angle and less the monster. Um, there's, if you went down into the underworld, potentially, then yeah, you're going to run into a lot more beasties and gribblies down there. But at least on the surface world, I try to have it more almost like an Arabian Nights feel. Something oh, yeah. that has something that has a magical overtone, but otherwise is a very human face to what you see there. I yeah, think that's, that's a good work, Matt, because you've got a vision of how you want that world to be. Whereas if you come to Dreamlands without a strong vision, it just be a bit of a, a mishmash of of different things. I think. Mm. And we tended when I ran uh, since the slide of Handman, there's a, a prominent city there that's not really mentioned on the maps or in the Chaosium material for it called Losk, aside from being a little little note in a sidebar. But um, in that campaign, it, it's more prominently featured and he had, they fleshed it out quite a bit. That's one thing I will say for that product is if you want a better feel with the Dreamlands is light is grab the sense of slide of hand man because he has fantastic detail on some of the cities and stuff that are in there. And I mean, everything down to bars and, and armor dealers and poisoners and all kinds of crazy stuff that probably will never come up in a game. But I tend to run a very freeform game. So um, I never know what in the hell the guys are going to come up with. So we tended to settle kind of in that city of Losk more than anything else. And we played many, many games in, in that area, enough to where they actually bought a damn castle and I mean, they were going ape crazy with it um, in that one little area of, you know, backwater dreamlands, you know. So it worked out really well. We had a lot of fun playing it. Are there any other uh, time periods that you, you've played or uh, that you've GM stuff in, you know, that, that that aren't perhaps some of the pre-written ones, stuff that you've uh, that, that you've researched yourself? Well, I did that one I sent to you. I, I did a, a game in... Um, Lancashire enforced a Boland. Oh yes. Uh, for for it was actually for laundry files, but it was still a uh, it was a fun game. Um, that was set modern as well. Oh yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was that was quite pleasant. I enjoyed that a lot. I li- I like doing uh, the research on stuff like that. So I had to ping Scott when I needed. I think I had a lady walking into a Littles, and she was he was like, no, she's too upscale for Little. You don't have to. She's got to go into something else. <laughs> I was like, oh okay, thanks. So, well, that's some detail right there. Should be in Waitrose. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> except, except Murph actually looked at a map at the time and said there isn't a Waitrose there. So we... That's exactly what I told him. <laughs> <laughs> I was on Google Earth. I'm sitting here going, no, I'm in Street View, man. There's not one anywhere near there. It's like, that's two villages down. So, But it was it was based out of a little place called Cliff Road. Like... 
Yeah, a little place called Clitheroe up uh, north of Manchester. And um, one of my players lives in that area. So it was kind of like a a little throwback to him. And then the Forest of Bolin is right there, which is just a big, I mean, that just screams, come and help me. You know what I mean? It's just, (laughs) come on. There's caves. It's a moor. Come on, what more do you need, you know? Yeah. So that was that was a lot of fun doing that. I had a, a great time playing that. I mean, that's um, another the great thing about the modern day is it's so easy to research. Yeah, that makes it really simple, especially for you know towns and stuff like that. And, you know, because you can actually, like you say, you can go on Google Maps and actually see the place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can get a feel of what it's going to look like and how they're going to play it out. You know, and uh, you can do property searches. I, I, you know, you can search for houses. Yeah, and yeah. Then you can you can find real estate ads for them, and then you got a floor plan for the exact house that you're with a photo walkthrough. So now you have photos that you can grab off Google as well of like, okay, this is the stairwell that she fell down, and here is where she's oh, laying in God, the middle yeah, of the yeah. floor. And that's what I did for that one. It was fantastic. It, it worked oh, wow. out really well. It, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, Brilliant. So yeah, that's I, that's the latest one I've run that I've actually wrote, and I I've, I haven't wrote anything else here recently. So, what about you, Scott? Have you um, you haven't really said a lot about other periods? I mean, what would you say is your favorite one, and which ones have you written for that you know you've you've had to research and so on? Um, Obviously, we've got the Second World War and the Cold War that you've been working on. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, minefield there, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the the Second World War in particular is quite a you know, tricky one to write about because it's a period that a lot of people know well and have done their own research on, or you know, have read lots of books, mm. seen seen a lot of films, and so you know, you have to be absolutely spot on with the detail on that, otherwise someone is going to pick you up. But I mean, apart from you know those obvious ones. Um, I guess the last one uh, that I wrote anything for was the 1930s, the Great Depression. Uh, one of the uh, the scenarios I wrote for Nameless Horrors uh, is is set in a Hoover film, um, and you know it's it's similar enough in some respects to the 1920s that you know, you can use a lot of the the source material in the books, but obviously you know the whole economic situation and a lot of the social situations are a bit different. Uh, so, you know, they, I think it does qualify as a different period. I forgot. I've, I've done a couple of games in the thirties as well. And, and as opposed to, I don't, I'm not entirely, you'll have to forgive me. I, I don't know my English history in the thirties. It's kind of a moot period for me, but, um, in the States it was, it was on our end, we had prohibition. So, I mean, that was a big, a big deal. Well, and then the depression hits and it is, there's a bunch going on in the thirties over here. And so that was, that made it sufficiently different so that it's not mm. um, the 20s yeah I it was a bit different here I mean we didn't have uh, prohibition um, so you know we didn't necessarily have the big rise of organized crime that came with that and a lot of the uh, kind of social upheavals uh, but we did have plenty of other uh, kind of unpleasantness going on particularly in the 1930s with uh, uh, the rise of our own particular homegrown brand of fascism well, that's good to know. I'm glad it wasn't just us. Uh, I was going to say, hardly surprising when Scott chooses a nice, happy time period, but instead goes for the uh, the grim, <laughs> most probably one of the more grimmest periods he could in modern history. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I seem to be drawn to the grim. Uh, you don't say. I would have never guessed. I mean, 
just as an aside, you know. I always thought you as a very happy-go-lucky kind of guy. <laughs> Flowers and rainbows. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, I think the the other historical stuff I've done, I've done you know a fair bit of uh, kind of Victorian period stuff, but uh, less the kind of standard Cthulhu by gaslight urban things, and um, uh, more um, well, I. I, I I did uh, uh, yeah something that was set in, for example, rural Scotland a while back, uh, um, in the 1890s, which was obviously very different from Cthulhu by Gaslight. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I I think you know Cthulhu by Gaslight is a great product, but it focuses you know very much on on one setting and you know one particular snapshot of the Victorian era, uh, both in you know, both in terms of uh, you know time era and you know in terms of the, the kind of class of people involved there, and you know Victorian London even if you want to go into that is such a sort of um, throughout the scope of Victoria's reign is such a changing place and such a rich and vibrant and horrible place uh, in terms. And the conditions in which people lived, and the ways in which they had to make their own livings, and and so on. That yeah, it, it's something I really want to you know explore a bit more at some stage. And I, I've been playing around with um, medieval, not really dark ages, but um, more of a kind of a medieval setting for Call of Cthulhu as well. I've not really gotten very far with it, but I I, I like that whole um, you know Lord and Surf type relationship. Because um, it it lends itself towards you know the duplicity of man and, and the horrible things you can allow one another to do to each other without ever having the mythos involved, just like every other time period we tend to play in. But uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to be as uh, it's not as popular either. Mainly, mainly probably because Dark Ages kind of stole some of the thund- thunder there. Um, but you know, it, it's slightly before Dark Ages, so. Oh, cool. Um, so, I mean, when you talk about you know, the, the era, I mean, whereabouts is that set? Is that in Britain or mainland Europe or somewhere else? Or? Was I had um, I believe I had set it around uh, Germany um, in that era, in that or in that area rather, um, right around high medieval. So, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. When it comes to selling uh, a historical setting like that to the players, um, how how do you go about it? I mean, what what kind of degree of knowledge do you expect the players to have? How do you get their buy-in on it? I'll be honest, I'm not I'm not the best at that because I I well, let me rephrase. I, I, I what I tend to believe is that if I know enough about it. I can pretty much guide the players in whatever direction I need them to go in setting wise. So if they have a question and I I freely want them to ask questions when we play in these kind of sessions, you know, it's like, well, can we do this? And like, no, those aren't available. Those haven't been invented yet, you know, or things of that nature to try and get them in there. I also tend to create a a primer, like a, um, a white sheet, if you would, of common things that their players would know depending on what class and, and city that they may be in. So, you know, cause if they're all playing surfs or something of that nature in a, in a scenario way back when, uh, then they probably haven't traveled anywhere. They probably can't read and they have no idea other than word of mouth of what adjacent kingdoms there are or baronies or whatever you want to call them. So in that sense, I give them a little sheet of what they know for sure that is there and then what they've got rumor of, 
you know, and then other things that might have come up that, you know, word of mouth things in the town that's very local and something like that. But uh, aside from that, if we play medieval, I'll, I'll try and reference it to a, a movie is the easiest way just to say, okay, you remember freaking Robin Hood with Kevin Costner. Okay. That's kind of what you're, <laughs> that's kind of where we're at. Guys, okay? Oh God. You know, nice factual setting right there. Yeah, I know. Right. It's just great. I mean, you can't get much better. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's just the easiest way to relate it to players yeah. sometimes yeah, is definitely. to give them a mental image of yeah. something that you know that they've probably seen, whether they wanted to or not. And if you're and then, playing sci-fi, you just say, you know, it's Blade Runner or it's Alien or something exactly, like that. Exactly. And, yeah. and you kind of instantly know, not necessarily that you're playing that exact world, but you know the kind of tech level. and Yeah, because they've already done all the work for you there. You know what I mean? Ridley yeah. Scott did such a great job. Everybody's seen it and knows it. And she's, yeah, it's, okay, think of Blade Runner. All right, that's where we're at. And you just move yeah. on. You don't have to worry about it. And then the little minutiae detail, you just work out ahead of time. So when it comes up, you can just kick it down or, or allow it or however it goes. So yeah, Blade Runner may not be the you know the the best reference for me there because yeah you know, when 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 uh, when I saw Blade Runner at the cinema in the first place I was living in Hong Kong at the time and I yeah uh, it, it was just after having seen the film you're know, walking out of the cinema afterwards and it was you know like the same world. <laughs> yeah, I found that when I was in Hong Kong on holiday and it was even raining and I had an umbrella but it was really hot and yeah I just I felt like but, everybody's umbrellas should have those like glow sticks. Yeah, I was going to ask was the was the umbrella glowing, Paul? You know, yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't, it wasn't the same, you know. <laughs> I was looking for those big, um, you know, those big ships flying overhead saying, <laughs> a new life awaits you on the off-world colonies. I just want the little noodle boat, you know, the ramen ship to come by at my hotel window. <laughs> so buy ramen from the 40th floor. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's about all we got time for today, folks. Um, thanks very much for being on, Murph. It was a pleasure having you as a guest. Yes, thank you, sir. No, that was that was a great chat. Anytime, yeah. Absolutely happy to come on. It was a pleasure. Indeed, pleasure uh, to finally get to meet you as well. Yeah, no kidding. I can't believe we haven't I haven't met half of you. It freaks me out. Um, I don't know why either. There's no good reason for it. And you're a regular host on Miskatonic University podcast. Is there anywhere else that people are going to hear you or or hear from you? Um, no. Right now, that's pretty much it. Uh, I do have something else in the works, but I'm not ready to announce that just yet. But uh, yeah, hopefully I'll, you'll hear from me even more soon. And, and that's not just the Miskatonic University podcast. That's the any nominated Miskatonic University oh, yes. podcast. Uh, you got yes. an any nom. Which, by the way, I, I, this is a little, I'm sorry to eat up your time here, guys, but <laughs> I was really upset you guys didn't get an any nomination. I really thought y'all deserved one more than I did personally. Oh. Oh, that's, that's kind of you to say that, Murph, but, but yeah. I, no, I, I think... It was kind of a flabbergasted thing. We got an any nomination at the same time. We were like, I don't know why good friends didn't get one. You know, it was, it was weird, but <laughs> Oh, it's very kind of you to say. Well, you got, rest assured, you got my vote. So uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't think we'll win, thanks to Ken and Robin, but it's nice to know someone voted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, you deserve it. All right. Well, thanks very much, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Well, that was a really good interview. Well, it had better be a good interview. I mean, obviously, we're recording this before we've done the interview, but we, we trust Murph to give good interview. And we're if back, not... We're back in the great race of youth kind of time frames again, aren't we? 
You know, jumped forward, now we're jumping back again. So I'm going to have to crack as many attract fish jokes as I can so that we can make Paul really like that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lost. I'm going to wrap it up. So it's, uh, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com mm-hmm.